0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey again, everybody. It's Mike and Mark with you. And today, we have a fascinating guest. He's a World Series champion, a Boston legend, a cancer survivor, and a National League Manager of the Year, not to mention... One of baseball's truly good guys. And Mark, he's one of your former teammates.
1: Yeah, exactly right, Mike. He's one of the good guys, but also he had to work hard. One of those late bloomers that had that signature moment in a career, and it really captivated everyone in New England and in the Boston Red Sox lore. But it really has a lot to do with what Dave has done in the game, but also what he's doing now with the Los Angeles Dodgers.
0: Well, Dave, you certainly had a fascinating career, really both as a player and now a manager. But if you don't mind, we want to start with your signature moment as a player. And we don't think we're going to get an argument out of anybody in New England uh, when we say it had to be your stolen base in the 2004 ALCS against the Yankees. Um, Yankees fans may argue, but I don't think anybody in Boston will. But you're down 3 nothing in that series already. Three games to none. And the year prior the Yankees walk you off in a game seven. So if you would set the scene for game four, the dominance the Yankees had shown to that point and where you felt you were as a team.
2: You know what, Mike, it's crazy. When I, when I look back and see that it was, you know, 2004, we're here in 20 and I look back at the footage and I've got the goatee and uh, I'm moving considerably better. And I just recall my teammates and what a, great group of guys, my the coaching staff, the organization. And it was just one of those things that I was a small piece of a great team. And um, I was a bench player at that point in time. And I was, it was an opportunity that I was prepared for. And um, I wasn't afraid to fail. And so it's one of those situations that you can always prepare for something, a certain moment, um, a game or a season, whatever it might be. And you just with the uncertainty that it might never happen. But I think, um, you know, they always say that, what is success when preparation meets opportunity? And so, it's. I look back at my mentor, Maury Wills, who always uh, kind of put a lot of time into me and saying, hey, DR, you know, you're gonna have a chance to steal an important base and everyone in the ballpark's gonna know you're gonna steal and you can't be afraid to take that chance. So, it's funny, Mike, as I was walking onto the field or jogging, he was in my ear. And you had the other side where it's like, and I know baseball, we know baseball where Bill Buckner conversely had a great career, a ball goes through his legs in 86 and and he's kind of ostracized from, from new England. And uh, so for me, that was the, the kind of the, the yin and the yang going through in my, in my head. And fortunately I had an opportunity, I was successful and we went on to win eight straight games, but could I have forecast, you know, that, was a turning point? Absolutely not. But I'm just humbled for you to even bring it up.
1: You know what, Doc? Uh, it, it's interesting. For our listeners, there's a lot of people that know that big moment that you had. But let's set the stage because your manager, Terry Francona, had a lot to do with the scenario that happened. It's down 4 3, and here comes Mariano Rivera in the ninth inning. They've already won the first three games, th- third game convincingly. So here's Rivera. So everyone in the Yankee uniform is very confident. Kevin Millar draws a walk, your teammate. And then Terry Francona, who has already gone over this scenario with you, inserts you as a pinch runner. And take us through that moment because Bill Miller is on deck. He comes up and he starts digging in. And there's all kinds of dynamics that really lead up to you guys tying the game. Take us through those moments.
2: So you know what's funny, uh, Swains, is so – some of the footage shows me kind of doing the uh with my hand and going like the repeat sign the repeat to the bench and i knew the sign and basically the bunt sign was on and so bill miller was ultimately gonna bunt me over and i told the first base coach lynn jones that i want to steal second base and so tito terry franco and i we got eye contact and I told him to do it over to mean take off the bunt sign. And so he ended up looking at Dale Swam, our third base coach takes off the bunt sign to his credit. So for a manager to empower me, the player to kind of do what I do was pretty impressive. So then at, at that point in time, Lynn Jones whispers in my ear, okay, kid, do what you do.
1: When you think of it, uh, it, it, you did that. And I, You mentioned this earlier, which I think is really important for our listeners to know. Everyone that's watching that game as a fan, as teammates, everybody in the building, they knew you had to take that chance. And it ended up being a backdoor cutter, I remember. And it was a pretty good pitch for Jorge Posada to throw uh, to second base. He pulls it a little bit on the shortstop side. And you slide in, left hand goes in, but you're going as, at full speed here. You go, your body momentum goes over second base and you hook your left leg and you stay on that base. There's certain details that are just amazing to it. And yes, we know you stole the base, but take us into that base, base running story of you sliding in, the, the anxiety that you had going in, and then the joy of being safe. Well, take us through
2: there. That's 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 great. You know what's funny is that I only hit twenty-six major league homers, so I, I didn't hit many homers, but when I did hit homers, most home run hitters know when you hit it, you get it, right? And so as a base dealer, when you get a great jump, you almost have that something inside you says, I got this. Regardless of the delivery, the, the throw uh from the catcher to the to, to the shortstop or second baseman, and I had such a great jump. But it's interesting is that I didn't realize, number one, how close the play was when I look back. And I do make that joke that hopefully over time, it keeps getting closer and closer. And I hope ultimately Joe West doesn't change his mind and call me out. (laughs) But you made a good point, though, Swains, because now with replay, I don't know. I didn't look closely enough where Derek kept the tag on. And if I did disconnect from second base at all, where if there were replay. Would I have been deemed out? And I don't know that, but I do know that I did hook my leg, though. Certainly,
1: you go on the first pitch, and that really determines uh, the managing style of Terry Francona. It's one zero. Bill Miller squares to bunt and to try to bunt you over to third base. He takes a strike, and then everyone in the building, including Al Leiter, who was commenting on, on the broadcast, he thought the bunt was going to be on still, and. Take us through the scenario of what went on with Terry Francona and that scenario with a 1-1 pitch to Bill Miller.
2: Well, the thing is, is that I love the way that Tito let uh, Billy swing the bat. Because if you look at the characteristics of Mo, he's a right-handed pitcher who throws a cutter that bores in on the left-handed hitter. So if you were to bunt where there's a guy on second base, nobody out. Tony Clark could be in, would would have been in. So now, because ideally when there's a guy on second base, you want to make the third baseman feel that ball to uh, uh, to get that, so to get the guy over to third base. So to bunt a ball cutting in on you to third base is very difficult. So now, conversely, to let that ball come in on you, and it's easier to hook that ball to the right side of the infield to get, to get me over to ultimately have a chance to drive me in. So Mo left the pitch out over. He shoots it up the middle, and, and Mo – tries to be a hockey goalie and and block it, but it gets through. But I think that letting the player um, play the game and control the barrel and the bat, I think, was the right decision. It played out nicely.
0: Dave, how did you control your emotions in the moment? Because if I remember right, you hadn't played for, what, like 10 days uh, prior to that base running appearance, and you're on the grandest of stages. You're talking about playing for a team in an 86-year World Series drought I can't imagine the
2: pressure, but you lived it. What was that like? I'll tell you, it was, it was, Mariano did me a favor by throwing over three times because yeah, Mike, I I hadn't played in seven to 10 days. I hadn't been on field. So now you've got, it's, it's 30 something degrees in Boston. I don't have a lot of room to run in that dugout. I was on that wood plank going up to the clubhouse that I know Mark remembers. And uh, I was nervous Um, And so when he threw over the first time there was emotions that started to dissipate and then he threw over again and I was almost out and then kind of my nerves calmed even more and then my focus got even more finite and then the third time Mike it was like I had played the entire eight innings prior and I just said if you deliver that baseball to the home plate I've got you so I, as I look back, if he would have just delivered the ball, I don't think I would have went the first pitch. But after I kind of put him on radar-like, it kind of was like my, my goose or my maverick top gun on radar-like with Mariano.
1: When you take it through, uh, you guys win that game with David Ortiz with a big hit in the 12th inning. Game five, Ortiz stands out again. And you score the tying run in game five. So there are other moments leading into your opportunity going back to Yankee Stadium. You win a tight game in game six. Game seven comes and Johnny Damon just gives you a breath of fresh air. You guys feel really comfortable with that. You said going on, uh, winning against the Yankees almost solidified what you guys were as a club. You go on with eight straight victories after your stolen base. And then you start popping champagne. Tell us what that's like. Because uh, as a player... You go through those big moments, you take down the Yankees that already won the year previous, and now you're starting to realize that we get to celebrate. Take us through those celebrations, if you might.
2: Well, I'll tell you this, is I remember in that series, um, Johnny, Mark Bellhorn were having terrible series, and I was basically a team psychologist, and pumping them up, telling them, you know, they're getting booed every time they come out there, the, the... The press is crushing them, the fans. And I was just saying, hey, guys, we're going to need you. We trust you. We love you guys. You guys got us here. And I just think with that club, where we were down 4-0 to take it one game at a time to ultimately come back and do something that was unprecedented, never been done. And I think that when we are popping champagne in Yankee Stadium after that game seven, Johnny goes off, and then ultimately to win the World Series, it's so cool because when you're talking about a World Series championship, it takes not 25 guys that are on your playoff roster. It literally takes upwards of 50-plus guys. And even in the the postseason and leading up to the, to the regular season, there's so many people that played a part. And me, I was there at the deadline. And those guys from David to Pedro to Manny to Johnny, when I got traded over from the Dodgers, they made me feel like one of their own from the beginning, from the outset. So I just felt a part of things. So then when I was popping champagne – I felt like, man, I did as much as Manny, who was the World Series MVP, or David, who was the biggest clutch hitter I've ever played with.
0: 45 games, you played uh, for the Red Sox in the regular season before the the heroics we've been discussing. And I don't know, David, if you felt the media romanticized it or if it's real, but the portrayal of Game 4 being a turning point, you're living it in the city with this team. Did you feel that seismic momentum shift that people want to write about? Or were you still, look, you're still down three games to one in reality
2: at that point. Did you feel it tangibly real? I, I didn't. I didn't. And I think that we were still looking at game five. And I, and I appreciate Mark bringing up game five because I was fortunate enough to come in and do the same situation and tie the game in game five on a Veritech sack fly. And that situation there wouldn't have been a game four. They wouldn't have been talking about game four if there wasn't game five where I came on and Flash Gordon was the pitcher. And uh, he was really slow to the plate, but he kept trying to quicken up and deter me from stealing. And he got behind uh, to Trot Nixon 3-1. And 3-1, I decided to steal second base when he got a little bit bigger and slower to, to the home plate. I took off and Trot Nixon got a base up the middle, and I went first to third. And if I wouldn't have been stealing right there, I would have been held up at second base. Tech hits a fly ball to left field, scores me, and that was a tying run. So I think that for me, just to play a part in that um, was big. But I think that fans in sports just love moments. And, and one that comes to my mind, and it's another sport, is Dwight Clark's catch at the back of the end zone against the Cowboys. And you know Joe Montana is great. Or the Odell Beckham. And, and this is, for me, the baseball, you know, it's the Fisk, it's the Aaron Boone, you know, all these different things. I was an average player in the big leagues. I played for 10 years, but I just think that people look at certain moments. So after we win the World Series, I think that people are always looking for a moment. You can say David Ortiz, the homer against Quantra, or the soft serve winner against uh, Esteban Loaiz, which was a 12-13 at bat. But I think that I got traded at the deadline, this fast guy from LA that really no one knew about. And so, for it to get play out like that, that this is the guy we traded for, he got called on the pinch run, he steals his base, that's flipped the script. That's what I kind of, so for me, it's just very humbling.
1: Doc, it's the Celtics, it's the Patriots, it's the Bruins. The Red Sox win in 2004 behind your heroics. I want to say one word and I want to get your reaction. Duck Boats.
2: Uh, duck boats, um, something everyone should, uh, experience. Um, the duck boats, I never thought I would be, I didn't know what the duck boats were until I got to Boston. (laughs) I didn't really know the Charles river and I'm a, I'm a history major. So I did the duck boats on the Charles in like 40 degree rain, but it was the best party I've ever been a part of.
0: Dave, you get traded after the World Series, and is I, I that a high to a low type of feeling? Where were you mentally riding? You know the duck boats, the parade, all the fanfare, the legend building. Boom! You're traded.
2: I'll tell you this: is that I will never forget what Theo Epstein did for me. I was slated, I was going to be third year arbitration. I was going to be back with the Red Sox as a fourth outfielder, and I went to Theo and I said, Theo. I love the Red Sox. Thank you for getting me here. But I'm in the prime of my career. I want to play every day and I want an opportunity to play. And he heard me. He listened. He and Kevin Towers reached a deal. And even KT, God rest his soul, said that I overpaid to get you. um, But I wanted you to be in San Diego. And Theo made the deal happen instead of being piggish and keeping me in a Red Sox uniform. So for him to allow for me to to go and play, I'm forever grateful uh, for what he did. So for me, leaving Boston after a championship, but then to go back and to come home to San Diego was a thrill of a lifetime.
1: Doc, we're teammates in 2005 when you come over from the Red Sox. And we're all excited because we wanted to hear your recollection of of your big moment. And the season starts and you're on the disabled list to start the season. But why I say that, and it was the disabled list then, now the injured list. Why I say that is you get the opportunity to go back to Boston for the ring ceremony. Take us into that moment because that is the crown jewel for
2: a player. It, it, was, it, was, it was interesting because what led up to that, Mark, was I was asked to come back for the, for the ring ceremony and I wasn't, I, I had a hamstring injury to start the season. So I didn't start the season active with, with, with our club. In San Diego. And I was really hesitant because I felt that I did it last year. I didn't want to disrespect my teammates, the organization. And it was Trevor Hoffman who really encouraged me to go and feeling that our team, my teammates at that point in time, wouldn't be slighted for me to go and acknowledge something with my teammates of the year prior. And so then I kind of went there and that ceremony to be received Um, By the Red Sox faithful. This is 86 years. So I think that for me, I never, as you guys know me, I never want to make anything about myself. But to be able to experience that with those fans was something I'll I'll never forget. And I'm grateful for my teammates and the Padres for allowing me and encouraged me to go back for that day to Boston and come back with my teammates in San Diego.
1: Yeah, I think all of us were grateful for that, but it really takes that leader, the Trevor Hoffman's of the world, to be able to uh, put that stamp of approval on. And, and, you know, when you came back, it it was so great because it it was about your moment. It was about your team and you being there was really important. I want to fast forward for our listeners, because I think this is important to understand. We were teammates also in San Francisco. And why I say that is we're going back to Boston. This is your first time you're able to go back as a player in a different uniform. And why I say that is I want to give it from my perspective, which to me was unbelievable. I'm not in the starting lineup going into Boston, who I grew up in the, in this, in the city, right outside the city of Boston. This was my first time going to Fenway. So I was excited, but your situation trumped that because it's, it really has a lot to do with what you did and the impact of that city and for our listeners to understand I wasn't in the lineup Ryan Klesko was in the lineup I asked Bruce Bochy if I could get a start because I was a role player I asked him to get a start and he said sure I'll get you in there well the first night I wasn't in there and I was kind of disappointed and why I, I just I wanted to get it out of the way cuz I had so many friends and family in there side note to that Ryan Klesko hurts his back He's scratched from the lineup. I get thrown in there. And why I tell you that story is I got slotted into the two hole. You were leading off that night. And I want to understand the impact that I got the front row seat when they announced your name and it was the anticipation of everything, the culmination of what impact you had on that Red Sox uniform, the Red Sox nation, all of their fan base, everyone involved. And you walked up there, I had chills in my body, I still do right now, because it was the admiration of everything that you did for so many people there. And it was a cool moment because you don't think of that's gonna happen. And you walked up there and you get the ovation of that. Speak to those steps going into that, uh, that batter's box, because that had to be one of the great, greatest moments that you felt.
2: Um. I'll tell you this, Mark. First off, I want to say that my uh, appearance at Fenway did not trump your appearance at Fenway. Um, You (laughs) uh, growing up as a Red Sox fan and your family in New England and going to Red Sox games as a kid, I felt you and I was feeling for you in the sense of I can't imagine what it feels like for you. Um, But for me personally, I think it's one of those things where you never expect something like to happen or you to be a part of something like that as a player um but it just speaks to what baseball means to all of us and where we're living in a world right now where there's uncertainty with when we're going to play if we're going to play this is why we need baseball because it's generational you know these are people that you know people that just passed away that when I heard stories of my, I'm so happy my grandfather, my grandmother got to see the Red Sox win a championship before he passed, he or she passed. And I'm glad my kid was there for me to say, I was there when we won when we won the World Series in 2004. And so for that appreciation, that come from a place of sincere love and passion and all these memories. So for me at that point in time to be somewhat of a focus and for them to put their gratitude into me, I mean, humble is not even the word. It just doesn't do it justice. Just, I'm just so grateful to be a part of it. And I will say this: is that it's funny. After that, I was I everywhere I went. It was the stolen base, stolen base, and I'm like, wait a minute. I played ten years in the big leagues, <laughs> yeah. but I think that as you look back and you're getting letters every day for people to you know mention it or sign cards, it's more like you know what. I had a great moment in some people's lives and I take it as such, as opposed to almost like as an insult to my 10 year career. And that's the way it's intended. But to your point, Mark, I just can't even, and even Barry Bonds, who was our teammate goes, I've had ovations, but I just really have never seen something like that. And so that, that meant a lot.
0: You know, it's interesting Dave, because bottom line is you're inextricable uh, from Boston's history. you Come up in 99 with the Indians. Uh, you end up going to the playoffs, you play Boston, right? You have the big stolen base five years later for Boston. You manage against Boston uh, as the Dodgers' leader. So they're, they're almost one in the same. You say, Dave Roberts, you think Boston on one side of the fence or the other. But because we're called Major League Beginnings, let's go back in time, if we could, to 1999. You're a 27 year old when you get the call to the big leagues. You get called up by Cleveland, as we mentioned. Uh, that's a good team. Mike Hargrove, the skipper then. What do you remember about when you got told you were finally going to the big leagues at 27, who you spoke with first and your emotions at the time?
2: <laughs> so it's funny. I wasn't playing my best baseball in A Buffalo uh, for the Indians. I was hitting about 276. I was in Rochester. Um, my wa- my girlfriend then, my wife now, Tricia, was with me in the hotel. Uh, I think it was called the Adams Mark Hotel. I think swings, you probably remember yeah, that one. It I was do. on the throughway there, up in up in Boss, up in Buffalo. But um, but we we're in Rochester, and I got a call from my manager Jeff Dads, and I promise you guys, I thought I was going to get released. <laughs> I'm twenty seven year old years old in AAA, and he's calling me, uh, you know, into his into his room at midnight. Um, And so he tells me I'm going to the big leagues and Kenny Lofton hurt his hamstring. And so I just couldn't believe it. And it's one of those things where, and I tell our players now, it's like, you just never know what's going to happen. So sometimes when you think it's going to happen, when you think you should, it doesn't, but when you least expect it, things like that happen. So after I got that uh, message from him, I went down and told my wife and we were just jumping on the bed and, you know, then you start calling family.
1: Doc, let's take us to the debut itself. You you get three hits, but take us into that game and and what that meant to you and and how'd you feel?
2: So uh, it was interesting as Grover penciled me in at the top of the order and it was one of those things that, what's the outlier? Um, Omar Roberts, number one, wearing number 52. uh, (laughs) Viscal two. Alomar, three me four, Ramirez five, or, or the other way around, uh, Alomar uh, Jr. in there. And it was like Travis Fryman. And it's like, who's the outlier? And it's ironically the guy hitting at the top of the order. So
1: you had some protection.
2: I had some protection. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The whole lineup was protecting me. Um, but what was interesting is I first at bat Bobby Witt and his son, so now you know you're old when his son is the first pick overall a couple yeah. years ago. And so he was my first at bat. I took one off the knuckles and hit like a 22 hopper to the mound. I couldn't feel my hands, my legs. And I ended up throwing out a couple hits after that. Checked the box for stolen base, uh, you know, runs. And, and we ended up winning the game. But it was just, you know, nowadays people look at, Tropicana Field, and they kind of dread going there. But for me, that was, that's my favorite ballpark in the big leagues because that's where I made my debut. And that was the night where Wade Boggs got 3,000 hits, where he hit a homer off Chris Haney, came around third base, got on his knees, kissed home plate. Oh, yeah. There were fireworks there. So I remember when the trough was packed. It was awesome. You know what? Uh,
0: 23 days later, that's when the legend really begins for you, Dave, because that's when you hit your first home run. And I think that's what you're best known for, clearly, uh, in your big league career. August 30th of 99 against the Angels, three-run shot. And uh, I can imagine you had talked about this. You kind of know when you get one as a stolen base guy or a home run hitter. Take us back into the box uh, and your
2: feelings of that three-run shot. So it was Ramon Ortiz, and uh, I owned him. I hit two career homers off him. (laughs) (laughs) Angel like, killer. I was a, I was a Ramon Ortiz killer. So like Barry and guys like that can say, and Tommy can say they hit you know, 10, 20 homers against a certain player. I owned, I had two career against Ramon Ortiz. Um, but no, I, was, I think it was a 2-1 uh, cement mixer slider that I hit to right center, and uh, I, I knew I got it. And I was using a friend of mine's bat, Russell Brandon, a teammate, and he was this big home run hitter. And for some reason, I used his bat. I hit a homer. I still have the bat to this day. Um, And I just remember going around the bases and just smiling like a little kid. And uh, there's even footage of me coming back, giving high fives. And it's just like I had won the World Series. But I just felt that it's one of those things that there's only one first, your first home run, and I'm going to enjoy it and I'm 27 year old years old I had a home run at Jacobs Field so and it was funny Kenny Lofton Manny Jim Tomey, Charlie Manuel was our hitting coach and everyone was thrilled for me so I never forget that moment so thanks for bringing that up
1: Doc do you remember the the your first major league bat and having your name on it and what that meant
2: I do uh it was a it was a pro stock bat that I had because when I was in AAA I wasn't good enough to have a name on my bat so it was a pro <laughs> stock um C271, something like a P72. And I don't have that first one. But you know, it's funny is that once you get up there, you're like, I got to get a bat with my name on it. So I'm talking to the, uh, to the clubby and I'm like, Hey, Teddy, is there any way I can get a bat with my name on it? So they ended up calling Louisville slugger. And I still got those bats right now with my name on it. So that's pretty cool.
1: The other aspect that's pretty cool when you, when you first come into the big leagues is your rookie card, do you remember your rookie card? And obviously you sign them when you get them in the mail, but what was that like for you?
2: It was one of those things that I remember when uh, I, it was number 52. It was my Cleveland Indians card. And I remember somebody saying that they went to like a Walmart or something and they got it out of a, a pack of cards and they showed it to me, and it was like I had, you know, getting to the big leagues was cool, but having your own rookie card and someone saying they got it out of a pack was, like, the coolest thing ever, and so then you start seeing autograph people show you your rookie card, and it's like you really arrived, because I had cards in the minor leagues, and, and you know, those are stock cards, but to have, like, a tops rookie card and I had a flair and it was just like it was something that now I could be like Tony Gwynn or Cal Ripken or Ricky Henderson. I had my own rookie card, and so it's not worth worth much, but I still have one.
0: Hey, it's worth a lot. It's <laughs> worth a lot. To, it's worth a lot emotionally. I mean, it, finances come and go, man. There finances go. and money, it all comes and goes. Uh, but you had that memory uh, and a, and a keepsake from that forever. You play till you're uh, thirty six years old. 2008, you decide uh, you've had enough as a player. You do some broadcasting. You go into coaching. 2016, you get the job as a manager of the Dodgers. Hey,
2: before you forget that, I want you to hold that thought. What's up? I got something before you get to me managing the Dodgers. The first, I got a first time I was ever cut or released. Wow. So, I was with the Giants. I had a guaranteed contract for one more year, and – My last year in 2008, I was in spring training. I was banged up, wanted to finish out my contract. I was going to be done that year. I got called in the office with Bruce Bochy, and I thought it was kind of a, hey, you know what, be a leader to Buster Posey, who's in camp for the first time, and some of these young players, Matt Kane, as Swain knows, and he was there the year before, Tim Linticum. I got called in, and they were telling me that our roads had ended. And so it was interesting because that flood of emotion, I've never experienced that. And I walked out of there like in tears and having to see my teammates going, I got two weeks before opening day. And now they're saying that's the end of your baseball career. So that's something that I'm actually glad I got to experience that moment because me, me now, as we start to go to your point, your question, Mike, is that I've checked on the box because if it weren't for that moment, How can I relate to a player when I ultimately have to release them or send them out if that's never happened to me? So uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mike.
0: No, no, I think it's I think it's a great point. And I I think there are people out there who uh, look at your story and think about perseverance, because in essence, you're kind of a case study in that regard. You come up as a 27 year old and you're not ready uh, to leave the game. Uh, when it's taken from you. And that honestly is the case for most players. Very few get to retire on their own terms. Uh, Not unique in that regard. However, I'm sure there's a lesson out there for folks who aren't necessarily in baseball for a living about getting knocked down, dusting yourself off, repositioning yourself mentally and emotionally, and moving forward toward the next challenge. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. So you tell us what advice do you have to somebody who might be experiencing something similar in their line of work?
2: I I think that that's the thing is that am I biased towards baseball players? Absolutely. Uh, It's a game of failure. Um, It's, it's about team. And so the grit that people talk about uh, that Renee Brown coined is, you know, passion and perseverance for a long-term goal. And I think that, uh, baseball is difficult and to kind of pick yourself up after you get released or you strike it with the base loaded, but you still got to play defense or you give up a, a home run and your team's out of it, but you still got to get out of the inning and log innings to save the bullpen. That is not easy. And I think that for me, it's really trying to live in the present, which is very difficult and me managing now where, you know, the noise or the failures or successes of the past, Um, or the expectations of the future, your goals, that blurs your mindset, your process and your your thoughts. So to really try to live uh, in the moment in the present and have a process on and, and the tough part is how you go about attaining that goal or that, you know, whatever you're trying to achieve. And I think that that is across all industries and all walks of life. And that's something for me, Mike, that I've learned as I've gotten older in, in a leadership role. And, you know, what's interesting is as a baseball player, uh, some of the things that got me to where I'm at at that point in time are some of the things that are deterrent as a baseball manager. And I say that because I was very stubborn. I When I take things personal, I use it as a chip. Um, I wasn't a good listener. But when you're a leader of men or women or a manager You have to not be stubborn. You can't make things about yourself. It's about the players. You have to hear the players and make it about them. And that's the only way you can lead, in my opinion. Do you think that's the, is
0: is that the greatest skill
2: uh, you think it takes to manage in this day and age? I, I think it is because if you can listen, then it gives you the opportunity to connect. And now where Mark and I came up where it was more of a dictatorship and you kind of fell in line where now you have to manage individual people and personalities.
0: You know, we mentioned a moment ago, uh, you're getting that job as skipper of the Dodgers in, in 16, it was 68 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. What do you remember about your feelings the day you got hired?
2: Um, I remember my 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 father's uh, the pride that he showed um, at that press conference. Uh, who my father passed away, um, grew up in Houston. One of one of eight children. I remember my mom being really excited. Uh, my kids uh, really got it. They were young, but my son Cole really got it. My daughter Emmy as well. Um, I remember seeing Don Newcomb there, Tommy Sorda, Maury Wills, and I just you know, you live life and you always want to do the right thing and and be successful and whatever that means. But I just never envisioned being the manager, being a major league manager, number one, but being the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers where, you know, Jackie Robinson went to UCLA, I went to UCLA where Jackie Robinson played for the Dodgers. I played for the Dodgers where he broke the color barrier and I was the first African-American manager, minority manager for the Los Angeles Dodgers. So, uh, it was overwhelming to be quite honest, and it really hasn 't even settled in to be quite honest
1: doc, you, you go through so many emotions as you already alluded to, but there 's also people to thank because they 've nurtured you into that opportunity. Do any names uh, come to mind, and, and what did they do leading you into that opportunity as a manager
2: well I, I think you know my parents you know they always really supported me and my sister being ourselves and being proud of who we are, they always kind of instilled in us being a leader, not a follower. Uh, My coach, Coach Adams at UCLA, always told me that, DR, every major league team needs a player like you that knows how to play the game, that plays hard, that's a good teammate. Um, And, you know, Maury Wills, I'd mentioned. And teammates, honestly, teammates that I had all throughout my career that, really helped me you know swing you being a great teammate and understanding the value of camaraderie and going to breakfasts, uh going to dinners together you know going to grab a beer together and understanding what it means to be a teammate and you know paying for young guys dues and paying it forward so that's what guys like yourself trevor hoffman did for me um and then when, when i get to tom Garfield was a mentor of mine who's now the president of the uh dolphins who helped me on leadership. And I've had other people, Pete Carroll, uh, Steve Kerr, outside of our game that have helped me with culture and things like that. So honestly, there's been endless people that have helped me and my wife. I mean, probably number one is my wife, Trisha, who's really challenged me to be myself and not be a pleaser and be authentic and be real and consistent um, as probably at the, at the top.
0: Dave, I've heard from players yourself, Mark Sweeney, the list goes on and on, that there's typically a moment, whether you're aware of it at the time or not, there's some moment as a player where you realize you belong at the big league level, um, and you're no longer trying to figure out if you should be there. Was there a moment like that for you as a manager?
2: Um, That's a good question. Um, You know, obviously, you know, when you... Go through games, especially in the national league, the game is fast. Um, you're trying to enjoy the moment, but you're trying to stay ahead of it. Um, I'll tell you that my first year there were there was a game um, that I got out managed. you know, Boch in San Francisco made a move that I didn't expect he was going to move and make a move, and you know really good, and it was kind of eye opening to me. Uh, I think that in 16 there was a game in, in uh, I think it was game four, maybe game five. I'm not sure what game was against the Cubs where I ended up walking the bases loaded. And I knew that they had Chapman in there. Chapman had already thrown an inning or two, two innings, I think. And I wanted to gamble in a tie game that if we can get Chapman in there again, we'll win the game. And, uh, They had Montero left. They had nobody else on the bench. And for me to walk two guys to get to Montero, to get to the pitcher spot, so then they hit. So we tried to get Chapman out of the game. That's what it was. So then they hit for Chapman and they hit Montero who hadn't played in a week. And Joe Blanton walked the two guys, bases loaded, two outs. And I felt if we could get through that inning, we were going to win that game. And Montero got down 0-2. And he ended up hitting a, a hanging slider for a homer, a grand slam. They won the game. But I just think for me to be able to put my neck and to believe the process that I felt that if we could walk the base a get their reliever out of the game, we win the game. And I felt that was the best way. And so it did work out. But I think at that point in time where I felt I could trust a process and not worry about a result, I felt that I finally arrived.
1: Doc, I mean, success is is gauged so many different ways. And uh, you've had a lot of success as a manager. You guys have gotten to that point where you're close to winning that World Series championship. You have two World Series against the Houston Astros, also the Red Sox. Not going to dive into the the reasons you guys lost. What identifies you and what's going to take to get over that hump for the Los Angeles Dodgers? And for our listeners, how hard is that?
2: It's and I don't know the answer. I I know that you got to continue to give yourself and your organization an opportunity to get over the hump, and that's to get to the World Series. Um, It's a collective effort. There's 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 you know it's talent. There's playing well at the right time. There's luck there's so many things that go into winning a championship and not to take anything away from basketball, but it's not where you can have two superstars and the best team wins baseball. And that's what makes baseball great because, you know, you can run into a team that's hot and they can win 11 games in October. Um, I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, my four years uh, being with the Dodgers, I think that we've won more games than any team in all of baseball collectively. And I think that's a success, but I do understand that, When you're in the market of the Dodgers and living in Los Angeles, it's about rings. And unfortunately, I got shoes to fill with Magic Johnson and Kobe. (laughs) And and so, and that's great. And that's great. And that's what you want. And that's what you play for. Um, But I think that for us to just kind of really continue to try to get better and, and give ourselves that opportunity. And I expect us to get over the hump though.
1: Doc, with all that success. Uh, and you go to the World Series comes with benefits. Uh, The following year, you manage your first All-Star game. And I want to take us to the second All-Star game because I think there's a a story that's very particular, and I heard this even from the man that was going through it, Brian Snitker from the Atlanta Braves. He managed four years in Atlanta, and you make a phone call to him. Take us into that dynamic because I think it is an incredible story our listeners need to hear.
2: Well, I I think for for me, I had the opportunity to uh, manage two all star two all star games, and and that is I grew up watching the all star game and you know seeing the home run derby, and to say to be able to write a lineup with all these superstars, it, it just it's mind blowing. But I think for me, I had an opportunity to pick one manager to be my bench coach, and I kind of looked at the National League and. Um, Brian is a guy that I really didn't know very well, but I've heard so many good things about him and he's a baseball lifer. And in baseball, everyone talks and everyone kind of knows everyone. Um, It's like the six degrees to Kevin Bacon. Y'all, and it's not even that with, with baseball, it's kind of two degrees, but I just love the way his team played and how his players spoke about him. And for a guy that's a lifer with baseball and, he was a minor league player, manager in the minors for so many years. I wanted him to get to manage, to be a part of a major league staff, manage the All-Star game. And, and guys, he was almost in tears when I asked him. And that's how grateful he was. And he gave me the biggest hug when we, we saw each other. And he and his wife uh, enjoyed the festivities. So for me, that opportunity I gave him is something that I'll cherish forever.
1: Doc, it, it, when the Atlanta Braves came into San Diego and I was working that game, I went up because I heard that story, and I went up and I wanted to introduce myself. We, we, you know, you know how baseball works. You go on the on the field and you always say hi to everyone, and everyone's really cordial. But I never got to dive in to Brian Snitker, and he told me the story about the team meeting. Could you elaborate on that just a little bit and how you presented it?
2: Well, you know, it's funny is that it's when you're addressing. Superstars uh, in a clubhouse, and you're the manager, it's not about winning the game. It's about showing uh, gratitude and appreciation for everyone in that room. And that's my opinion. And I wanted uh, certain guys to speak to, uh, you know, whether it's Scherzer, whether it's Yachty Molina, and also Brian Snicker, whether it's people that, you know, have had that opportunity many times over to speak to the people that were experiencing it for the first time and to show that it's not, it's a gift. It's not guaranteed. It's not a given. And I just think that living in a world of gratitude is very powerful. And I think that I took Brian back a little bit for him to address a group, but it was very sincere, very heartfelt. And I think again, for a guy that managed in the minors for so many years and now have an opportunity to address superstars in the game, I think that it was very empowering for him and it was a message that really resonated with everybody.
0: Dave, you've uh, had a tremendous run, not only as a player, also as a manager and and a great friend to a lot of us who've had the good fortune to get to know you along the way. But before we let you go, I'm going to give you three career occurrences and I'd like for you to rank them in order of uh, significance in your mind. Just making the big leagues at 27 years old and beating the odds, the stolen base in the 2004 ALCS or being named manager of the Dodgers? One, two, and three in your order of significance.
2: I think um, I think managing the Dodgers is number one. Um, I, I went the wrong way. I think getting to the big leagues is three. I think the stolen base is two, and managing the Dodgers is number one. And I say that because... Uh, getting there. And I think the numbers, the sheer numbers of guys that get to the big leagues. Uh, but uh, granted, that's my story. It's 27 years old. The odds are stacked against me. I, I signed for a thousand dollars in the 20th round as a senior. Um, and the stolen base, I was a part of a great team. I understand the 86 years. I was a part of a championship team, which was amazing. But I think that the Dodgers, there's only 30 of those jobs. Um, and my opportunity with the coaches to impact a lot of people in lives. I think that, uh, in a fan base, I think that kind of supersedes anything. And, um, for me, it's just an opportunity that I don't take for granted. And I, so I, I think that, you know, just with the sheer op- opportunity and the numbers, I think that's probably number one, but those are, those are all pretty good options.
1: Dave, I think, uh, from all of us that have been around you, uh, it- Everyone roots for for Dave Roberts because of how you have presented yourself, how you've represented uh, the game of baseball, and then an opportunity, which playing in that uniform is one thing, but managing the whole organization and and the the fan base, uh, you've done it with class, you've done it with dignity, and uh, you've represented yourself where I know your family, your dad, your mom, all the people that encompass the importance of your life have been proud of, including myself, buddy. And, I, and I'm so grateful that you take the time with us.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. And that from you, who's one of my best friends and, and teammates, um, it means a lot. And I think that there's there's uh, I, I I you know you all look for people to do things the right way, and it's it's you got to take it personal and as a challenge every day when you're you know leading. And I think we're all leading in certain ways. Um, And and so for me to have this opportunity and to have the respect of you guys, and I appreciate you guys having me on. This is just an amazing conversation. A lot of fun.
0: We do appreciate the time, Dave. Thanks very much and best of luck this season. If there is a season.
2: (laughs) There's going to be, I'll, fingers crossed.
0: Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time.